Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 84. While you're doing that, I want to ask a question. Does your theology always perfectly match your experience? For most of us here, our theology and our experience probably tend to run parallel with each other, with no apparent tension in our minds. The things that you affirm theologically probably tend to work themselves out that way in your life. At least for me, I know they tend to do that. There are times, however, when our experience tends to push back on our theology. Or maybe it's the other way around. There are times that we experience loss and suffering, and we really have to ask ourselves, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that God is good? Do I really believe that He cares for me? Is it all going to turn out okay? Is this going to destroy me? These are some of the questions that many of you have had to face in your lives. These are some questions that some of us have had to ask this very week. The questions I've asked this week. So what do we do then when we come face to face with a verse like Psalm 84, 11? The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. How do we, how do we take a verse like that in the midst of extreme heartache and loss? And so that's the question I want to consider with you this morning. And we're going to look at all of Psalm 84, all 12 verses, but we'll focus particularly on the implications of verse 11. And so I've entitled the sermon, Nothing Good Withheld. And our key words for our worshipers in training are dwelling place, strength, and trust. Before we look at the psalm, one thing I want to note about it is that while it's penned by a number of authors, the psalm of the sons of Korah, it is uh, expressed in very personal, singular, I, my language, rather than even we or our, it's me and you language. And this doesn't undermine the importance of our identity as a community, as part of the body of Christ, I think it serves the purpose of simply immediately highlighting and drawing our attention to the need for personal union and communion with God. And we'll return to that uh, concept uh, at the end of the sermon, but I want to draw our attention to it at the beginning of it, and so I invite you now to follow along as I read the entirety of the 84th Psalm. To the choir master, according to the Githith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, 
where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows honor, favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. If we were to sum up the book of Psalms as a whole, we could say that it's a guidebook to happy holiness or holy happiness. The book aims at drawing our affections and our wills toward God and His revelation to us. Psalm 84 is no different. Do you notice that there are three assertions in this psalm about the kind of person that is blessed? This is the theme of the entire psalm book. Blessed is the man who. It's how the whole thing begins. It could be a summary statement of the entire book. So it is in Psalm 84. In verse 4, we find that those who make their dwelling place with God are blessed. In verse 5, we read that the blessed ones are those whose strength is in the Lord. And in verse 12, we see that they are blessed who put their trust in the Lord. It is this trifold blessing that will constitute our outline for this morning. If we want to experience the blessing laid out for us in Psalm 84, we must make our dwelling place with God. We must find our strength in Him. We must put our trust in Him. In reality, we could argue that all of these three things are one in the same. To put our trust in God is the same thing as finding our strength in Him. The same as making our dwelling place with Him. These are all different ways of saying that we must put our faith in God. Specifically, we can say in Christ. This psalm is about faith and the blessing therein. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. First, our dwelling place. Blessed are those whose dwelling place is with God. One way of visualizing faith is to think about rest. What does it mean to have faith? Well, it's akin to making our home with God. How so? Well, what does it mean to make our dwelling somewhere? What, what is an abode? What is a home? What is a dwelling place? But it's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety, a place of rest. When life swirls and whirls about us, we can come home and relax, and we can rest from our labors. This is what faith is when we cease from our labors and come home and rest in what God has done for us in Christ. 
Well, what kind of home do we have with the Lord? We see in the psalm that it begins with an exclamation about our home with God. An assessment of God's beauty. The speaker proclaims, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. He recognizes the beauty and the majesty of God's presence. He considers the majesty of God to be so beautiful that he says that his soul longs for and even faints for the courts of God. The presence of God is precisely what his soul needs when it has run dry. Think of a time when you were tired, sweaty, thirsty. Maybe you had just finished running a 5K or a marathon or done a whole Ironman. Or if you live here, you just walked to the mailbox. Think about what it was that you craved in those moments. How much did you long for a cool drink of water? Or think about a time, perhaps, maybe you've gone away on an extended trip away from your family. How good was it when you saw them when you returned? Do you know the feeling that I'm talking about? The feeling of being without something or someone in knowing that that thing or that person is exactly what you need at the moment. Do you know the longing that I'm talking about? Well, if you do, think about what it was like to have that desire met. Not just the longing, but the fulfillment of that craving. Think of the first sip of water after or if you're being responsible during mowing the lawn in the middle of July and August. Think about the first time you laid eyes on your child after waiting through nine months of pregnancy. By design, the longing for and the fulfillment of these things point us to what it's like to be satisfied in God. When we think about Spending time with God. When you think about making your dwelling with Him, does your heart sing for joy? Or do you recoil in fear? Or are you casually bored? What does your heart do when you think of Canaan's shores? What's your response when you read these first two verses of Psalm 84? Are you struck with the delight in the experience you already have of God and are excited and longing for that which you will have in the future? Or are you moved at all? Has the world wrapped around you so tightly that your heart, wrapped around you and your heart so that the prospect of being in God's midst and His presence doesn't give life to your weary soul? Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking merely about butterflies in the stomach every time you read a Bible verse. You don't necessarily, you're not, you don't need to swoon. What we're saying is when you think about, when you really think about being in the presence of God, is it a joy to you? Is it a joy that you long for? Or do you feel perfectly at home in this world? And we can 
Perhaps we go through seasons. Sometimes we feel at home here when we shouldn't. Well, the psalmist here speaks of the courts of the Lord and how lovely it is, he notes that even the sparrow and the swallow can make their homes there. God is a refuge. He's a refuge for all His creation. If God cares for sparrows, how much more does He care for you? For indeed, you are worth more than many sparrows. Blessed are all those who dwell in God's house ever singing His praise. Well, secondly, in verses 5 through 8, we see that they are blessed who find their strength in God. Whereas the first section of this psalm ends with, I think, its main point, this section begins with it. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In these verses, we see a description of the blessing that comes from drawing upon the Lord for strength rather than attempting to muster it up ourselves. These verses are perhaps a bit strange. The, the imagery is a little odd. What does it mean to have highways in our hearts to Zion? What or who in verses 6 and 7 are we talking about? Why, do the why does the psalmist turn and cry out to God, pleading with Him to hear their cry in verse 8? The imagery here, I would argue, is it denotes one whose heart is set on pilgrimage. These verses speak of one who is on a journey and who aims at appearing before God in Zion. The point of this is simple. Where for you on this journey does your strength lie? By what power do you expect and attempt to make it through the day? How do you deal with struggle and hardship, with sorrow, when your sister won't return your calls or the job falls through? When the car won't start, the bill collector has come by again. You wake up and the child still isn't coming back. How do you deal? How are you going to make it to Zion? Right? I think that was the question we, one of the questions we were asking last week. What is going to get me through the grave? Where is your strength? Where do you look? Do you look deep within yourself? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, grit your teeth, and keep going. From where does your strength come? My prayer for you, for me, for us, is that we would say with the psalmist here, blessed is the one whose strength is in the Lord. Or with the psalmist over in Psalm 121, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is infinitely strong. God is omnipotent. You know the story in Genesis. God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son, even in their very old age. And in the midst of this promise, Sarah laughs. 
In Genesis 18.14, God asks, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The anticipated answer up to that question, of course, is no. A resounding no. Is anything too hard for God? He asks. No. Well, how does that whole thing turn out? God does the unthinkable. Gives them a son. There's a song by a man named Andrew Peterson called Canaan Bound. And it's written sort of from the perspective of Abraham, and he's encouraging Sarah along the way, and he's calling her to come with him to the land where God has called him to go. And in the song, Abraham says, O Sarah, fair and barren one, come to Canaan, come. Long after we are dead and gone, for a thousand years our tale be sung. How faith compelled and bore us on. How barren Sarah bore a son. So come to Canaan. Come. We grow weary and faint. Our strength is dried up in relatively small trials. But God endures forever. And He stands as a mighty fortress for His people. There are times in our lives when to take one more step would completely drain us of every ounce of power and energy that we have left. There are times when all we can really do is keep our eyes open. And yet, by faith, we can come to Canaan and have the Mighty One do the unthinkable for us. He doesn't always act for us in the way that we want. But he does act. It isn't always on our timetable. In fact, it's often not on our timetable. But God is infinitely strong and willing to act for us. And it is in his might that we must find our strength. Perhaps this is the point of the prayer at the end of this section in Psalm 84. This cry for help from the helpless creature to the indomitable creator. Oh God, hear our prayer Give us your ear, O God of Jacob. Thirdly, notice, blessed are those who put their trust in God. In verses 9 to 12, we see the blessing of putting our trust in in the Lord. Verse 9 begins with a call to the Lord to look upon his anointed. It is only in the context of God's favor bestowed upon his anointed king, David, and ultimately Christ, that his people can experience blessing. And so it is in God's faithfulness to his anointed Messiah and all who are united to him by faith that we trust. We see also in verse 10 a a return to the theme of God's dwelling place. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist reiterates the, the point. There is no place that I would rather be than with you, Lord. 
Asaph says in Psalm 73, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Is God your refuge? This world is swirling and whirling about you. The journey home is perilous. And danger seemingly, seemingly lurks around every corner. Is it good for you to be near God? Can you say this for yourself? Do you feel the truth of this in your own soul? Do you know it in your mind, in your heart? Given the choice, would you take a day with the presence of God, with His people, one day, Or would you take a thousand days doing anything else in the world? What is time better spent? If you had the choice to spend 24 hours with the Lord and then expire forever, or to have a hundred lifetimes to do whatever else you please, what would you take? Is it better? To be a doorkeeper in God's house? A lowly servant for the people of God? Or master of the world? Why is it so good to be near God? Why is it so much better to be with God, even just for a day, than with the world for eternity? Well, verse 11 seems to give us at least a partial answer. He is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. What do we mean that God is a sun and shield? Well, think about what the sun does. Sun provides light, provides heat, provides life. God is a life giver. What about a shield? What do shields do? They protect us from harm. God is a provider and a protector. He bestows favor and honor. In fact, He doesn't withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. And so now we've arrived at the ever, sort of, the ever mysterious verse How do we understand it? Do we really believe that God doesn't hold back any good thing from those who walk uprightly? I'm going to be honest. It does not always feel like this is true. So how can the psalmist say that the Lord doesn't hold back any good thing from the righteous? Think of things in your life that you've had to go without. Good things. Is this true? Is God holding back good things from you? What about the promotion that you, you want? Or maybe the one you need, but you just can't seem to get? What about the car that actually works? Or the household appliance that doesn't need to be fixed or replaced every few months? What about the peaceful relationship with your boss or your mother-in-law or your brother or your neighbor? 
This peaceful relationship with whomever that constantly eludes your grasp. What about a healthy household? Don't we know something about the pervasive and enduring sickness around here? Is God withholding good health from us? Infertility, war, strife, broken tools, broken families, car wrecks, corrupt politicians, unfit pastors, disobedient children, abusive parents, vengeful bosses or co-workers abound. We can't shake them. The good things that we seem to want often come too late, or not at all. So what gifts? Well, one potential answer is given to us by Job's miserable counselors. If God is holding back something good from you, it's because you are in either open sin or secret sin, and you just need to repent. Maybe Psalm 84.11 is perfectly true. There's no tension in it at all with our experience, and we just need to repent more. Well, while we need to affirm the reality that our sins do have consequences, and that God does chastise us for our disobedience as His children, and that it's always a good thing to take stock of our lives and renew our commitments to the Lord when suffering strikes, this is ultimately not a sufficient answer. Job's story alone proves that suffering doesn't always and only come because of some specific sin in our lives which we need to get rid of. The tension, rather, I believe is resolved when we widen our view of our lives. It's true that good and evil come to us. It's true that good things are withheld from us. However, for the people of God, nothing comes to you or is held from you that does not work in the end for your good. There are several places in Scripture that make this point. And I'll just direct our attention to two. First, in Genesis 50, 20, we read at the end of Joseph's story in Egypt, he was sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, Yet through God's grace and in his faithfulness, Joseph rose through the ranks. He became the second in command over all of Egypt and ended up saving an entire nation and many others from a terrible famine that really plagued the whole earth. And when all was said and done here, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's interesting. All the evil that came upon him, almost killed by his brothers, Slavery, he was accused of rape, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison for years before finally being released. None of that is what we would call good. And yet Joseph clearly attributes it all to the Lord for very good purposes. This is precisely what Paul says in Romans 8. All things work for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all of the evil that comes upon you is working out for your good. We might add your eternal good. 
There is a problem here, though. The problem with this answer is that it's not exactly what Psalm 84 says. Psalm 84 does not say that God works out things for good. He says that he doesn't withhold any good thing. Genesis 50 and Romans 8 tell us that God works bad things out for good, but is that the same thing? I would suggest if we continue reading in Romans 8, we would find our answer to this problem. In verse 32 we read, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all? all things. And he goes on and ends with a question. He ends his section with a question. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nothing. There it is. Our solution, God didn't spare His own Son so that He might give us every good thing. Every good thing needed to keep us in the love of of Christ. What we were saying then is this, that every hardship, every loss, every broken relationship, every flat tire, every flooded laundry room, every sick child, every rude neighbor, every terminal illness, every sore throat, every funeral, every wedding, every miscarriage or stillbirth, every tear, every lost job, Every financial strain, every pain, every trouble, and every time, everything seems to be going wrong for you. In some sense, this is good. In the end, it will prove to be for your good. Our present sufferings are not worth compare with the weight of glory that will be revealed in us on that day. These trials are shaping you and forming you further into the image of His Son. Who, as the song says, though He was rich beyond all measure, for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. This son, who though he was very God, a very God, emptied himself of all the glory and honor and praise that constantly resounded to him in heaven, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. He suffered and died. He took the evil. He took the pain. He took the sorrow, the rejection. He was cut off. He was stricken and smitten. He was barred from God's house so that you might enter in. He was laid to waste in a dry and weary land so that you might find strength in the valley of Baca, refreshed by the morning rain. He was forsaken by the sun and pierced through and left in complete darkness so that you might live In the light of God's smiling face, your son, your shield. Christ trusted in God and was cursed, and yet 
This was so that you might be called blessed as you trust in him. Well, I want to offer now a few, a few points of application and then we'll be done. First, I want to return to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Do you notice how many times the words I and you are used? Or at least some form of I. So like I, my, our. It's used, I, my, or our. Some, some form of that is used eight times. Some form of you, you or your, is used eight times. So in 12 verses, the personal pronouns I, my, or are, and you, or your, are used 16 times. And that doesn't include a couple of direct, um, like, expressions of direct address. So the word you isn't used, but like verse 8, he says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. There's an implied you there. And so we're like 20 times or so, we've got this I-you language being used in this relatively short psalm. And again, I'll just mention this conveys very personal language. This psalm is from the pen of men who have walked with the Lord. These sons of Korah are expressing themselves here in the singular. And this signals to us, can you read yourself into this psalm? Do you have the relationship identified here? Do you talk more about God in the third person or in the second person? Do you talk about Him or do you talk with Him? Is He your God? Is He your King? Or is he just someone else's? Each and every one of us in here falls into one of two camps, generally speaking. Either your heart and your flesh cry out to the living God, or they don't. And to that point, a second application here is for anyone that is not a Christian. If you are not a Christian this morning, you find nothing compelling about this psalm. Nothing in it resonates in your soul. I urge you, repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Stop building tents and palaces for yourself and your kingdom and find rest in the courts of the king. Stop looking within yourself for strength. Stop trying to muscle your way through life and find your strength in the limitless strength of God. Stop putting your trust in your own self and put your trust in God. Is your strength dried up as in the heat of summer? Will you call out to the one for whom nothing is too difficult? There is cursing and death for the one who continues in revolt against God. But there is blessing upon blessing for those who trust in God. Aren't you tired of being tired? Are you tired of wandering aimlessly around with no place to call home? I mean a place to truly call home. So if you're wandering, I urge you, come home. Third, thirdly then, for you, believer. If this psalm 
maybe doesn't describe you quite as you would like it to, as much as you know it should and and as much as it could, I want to offer you hope. You may be in a valley right now, surrounded by complete darkness. That's okay. God is still there for you. It's through dark providences that God simply hides uh, his smiling face. And so when we're lost and weary, God is a home for us. If we're weak and beat down, God is strength. If we're hopeless and helpless, he is a sun and shield. And so turn, turn to him. Turn to his word. Turn to a passage like Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Turn to him in prayer. Go and cry out to God, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed and don't let him go until he blesses you. Find him in the fellowship of his saints. Go to a brother or sister and tell them of your weakness. Tell them of your struggle. Ask them to pray for you. Find encouragement in your fellow traveler. Find the Lord in all the means of grace that He has provided for you. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You may not always see what's good in what you get, but just wait until the tapestry is finished and turned over. And there will light upon your eyes a sight beyond anything that you can imagine. For it has been written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Wait just a little longer, and all shall be well. And we will behold with unveiled face how lovely is the dwelling place of God. Let's pray. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For my hope is in Him. God, You are our rock and our salvation. Our fortress, we shall not be shaken. On you, O God, rest our salvation and our glory. You are our mighty rock, our refuge. And Lord, we pour out our hearts before you. Would you take your word and implant it deep within us? Would you impress these truths upon our hearts forever would you draw near to us 
and give us yourself. Our heart and our flesh sing for joy to the living God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.